Amen. And good morning. My name is Jonathan. I'm the executive pastor here. And man, I love hearing y'all sing. Y'all are okay at that, you know? Um, and it's just so good to remind ourselves of these incredible truths. Uh, I need to be reminded of those all the time. So thank you just for being here and for participating in that. Um, if you're new to our church, uh, there's some cards in the seats in front of you. I'd love it if you fill those out. If you have a prayer request or anything you want to share, you can drop those in the giving boxes around the room. And also, if you're relatively new and you've never been to First Table, First Table is something we do just to get to know each other a little bit. Uh, basically, what we do is we buy you lunch and we talk, and that's it. And it's happening today after the service in room 101. I believe, and uh, it, we just love to sit across from you and enjoy good food and good confront, uh, confrontation. Uh, <laughs> here's the thing. What I meant was conversation, but today we were talking about conflict, and so that's probably why that slipped there. So there will be no confrontations at first table. I can't promise that. I feel like that would be presumptuous. Anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, I want to introduce a new series uh, today. We're going to be in a series for the next four weeks in the month of August as we round out the summer called Grace People. And then as September rolls around, we're going to start a journey through the book of Exodus that we'll be in for most of the fall. I'm really excited about that. But we wanted to end the summer with this series called Grace People. You've heard me say this often if you've been here, uh, that the truest and the most important thing about you is that you were created in the image of God and you are deeply loved by God. And that was true of you before sin ever entered the world and it's gonna be true of you after God deals with our sin, that that is the truest and the most important thing about you. And he loves us. And one of the ways that we experience his love is through the experience of his grace. Grace is a wonderful word. It's an amazing word as the song would suggest, right? Um, what it simply means is God doesn't give us what we deserve. That's grace. God doesn't give us what we deserve. It's not that he doesn't know what we deserve. He knows. But instead of giving us what we deserve, he gives us Jesus. He gives us grace. And it's kind of this disorienting reality that we get from God, something we don't get on earth very often. We get grace, and in that context, we are transformed. Um, there's a great book called Grace-Filled Marriage. If you are married, it might be worth picking up. Uh, in it, the author makes a statement that I think is true and just kind of stunning when you really think about it. He's talking about marriage, but I would generalize this to all of our earthly relationships. He says, what is lacking most in relationships isn't love, but it's grace. What's lacking most in our relationships isn't love, but it's grace. And he, he points this out, that you can love somebody very deeply. I mean, love them with all your heart, with all your soul. You can love someone really deeply, but if you give that person consistently what they deserve, then that relationship is not going to be very life-giving. That relationship is gonna, is gonna struggle, and they're gonna struggle to feel that love. Love is great, but love is often experienced through the giving of grace. It's the ability to give someone something other than what they deserve that often creates the space for transformation to happen. Uh, I, I hope you've had relationships like that. I think they're, they're kind of rare on this earth, but occasionally we get those relationships where uh, we're in relationship with someone and no matter what we do, no matter our flaws, no matter our mistakes, no matter our brokenness and our sin, that they still care about us, that they still work for our good, 
that they still like us. And when we get those relationships, they're so precious to us. I mean, those are the ones that we remember for our life uh, because they're full of grace, and those are relationships that often change us. Here's what we're after with this series. We're calling it Grace People because we believe this simple truth, that if there is anywhere on earth that people should experience relationships like that, it is among God's people. If there is anywhere on earth that people should know, hey, with those folks, I'm not going to get what I deserve. I'm going to get something better than I deserve. It is with God's people. We should be grace people. As followers of Jesus, that's something we should aspire to. It's something we should excel at, is that behavior of not giving people what they deserve. So we're going to step into this, we're going to lean into it all month and just discover how is it that we can become people of grace in a world that desperately needs it. Um, I'm excited to introduce someone to you who's going to kick off the series. It's uh, David White. He's going to be diving into the subject of conflict. We're just going to go right there to the biggest barrier often for grace is when we're angry at someone and we're fighting with them. Um, Let me tell you a little bit about David, though. I've been at this church for 14 years. David has been here that whole time. He's actually been here almost 19 years um, and has been in leadership in our church, and and this is true, Um, just trust me, he is one of the unsung heroes of this church who has just quietly and consistently been this agent of spiritual health through all of the transitions of of this church, of Pulpit Rock. Um, He's been an elder on our governing board for years. He chaired the hiring team that brought Thomas to our church years ago. Professionally, he's been a pastor. He is a lawyer. He is also a teacher. And in his free time, uh, he decided to get trained in just helping people and churches navigate conflict in healthy ways. Uh, and so he's going to be sharing some of that from the, uh, some of the peacemaker material. Um, what do we do when we have a fight with someone and how do we bring grace to bear on that? Here's what I would say most about David, though. I've known him for years. Um, he and I have done a lot of uh, projects and just worked together. I don't know if you could find a more steady or wise or diligent or patient leader than David White. He has been a gift to us in so many ways as a church. So I would love it if you would welcome up David. It'd be a lot easier if you said terrible things about me, so I could change it in your mind. When you came in, there was one of these on a seat nearby you. Uh, You don't have to grab it right now, but I am going to be referring to it later, so I just thought I'd warn you about that. So if you don't recognize me, I usually sit down there, right there, third row, about in the middle, but I usually go to the first service. Uh, So for those of you who've been to the first service, you recognize me now? (laughs) Okay. So that's where I sit. Um, So what words come to your mind when you hear the word conflict? Just anybody, go ahead, shout it out. Did I hear pain? Struggle? I heard angry or anger, I'm not sure which was. Awkwardness. Fear? Hearing lots of good words, uh, which is amazing because I don't have very good hearing, so. But you're saying it now. Most people think of words that have negative associations, such as war, anger, frustration. Some people think of a synonym for conflict, such as disagreement or dispute, but it's much rarer, and in fact, I don't think I heard any of them, uh, for people to have positive associations. 
However, you know, there's a national best-selling book written by Patrick uh, Lencioni entitled Death by Meeting. And one of the premises of the book is that meetings are boring because they lack conflict. And believe it or not, he says the way to fix them is to bring a little conflict in. Meetings are compared to movies in his book where you realize and you stop and think about it that any worthwhile story that's going to engage your attention has some kind of conflict that needs to be resolved. And so uh, let's use this definition for conflict. Conflict is a difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone else's goals or desires. Now you may notice that in this definition, it doesn't use the word sin. Was sin one of the words that came to your mind when I asked you to think of words uh, that have to do with conflict? I wouldn't be surprised if it was because in our fallen world, sin has permeated mankind's efforts to resolve conflicts. However, there's nothing inherently sinful about conflict. Conflict is neither good nor bad in itself. Conflict can become good or bad depending on how we handle it. Believers in Christ are called by God to respond to conflict in a remarkably different way from how the rest of the world deals with conflict. And one of my goals this morning is to change how you view conflict, this idea that seeing it as neutral and not necessarily negative. I hope the associations you have with the word conflict won't just be negative from here on out, but you'll remember that conflict presents good opportunities as well. So conflict provides opportunity to glorify God. Conflict also provides the opportunity to serve other people. And finally, conflict provides the opportunity to grow to be like Christ. You know, a wise man once said, where two or three people come together in Jesus' name, there will eventually be conflict. <laughs> now notice I didn't say the Bible says that. I know that doesn't come from the Bible, but nevertheless, I think it's really true. In fact, I know it to be true. The principles I'm talking about today will apply to all kinds of conflicts in your life, both large and small. It may be something as mundane as deciding where to eat lunch after the service, whether you're going to first table or not, whether you're going to go home or whether you're going to go out, or goodness knows if you decide to go out, which place to go. You know, these conflicts, these are the type of conflicts you probably face in your family all the time. There's also a conflict that's a lot more serious. Like, am I going to be with my spouse by the end of this week, or am I going to move out? Now, I'm not saying those two levels of conflicts are the same. Obviously, they're not. But what I am trying to say is the principles that we're talking about now, biblical principles for resolving conflict, can work in both big conflicts and small conflicts. If conflict is inevitable, we need to prepare how we as believers and followers of Christ and members of Pulpit Rock Church should react to conflict when it comes along. We need to know what the Bible says about handling conflict. Uh, when you came this morning, you found a pamphlet in your seat. In fact, you can pull it out now. Inside your Peacemaker Principles pamphlet, you'll find a diagram which is called the slippery slope. That's if you open it up all the way on that side. And that's what it looks like up on the screen. I wish I could take credit for the visual representation of these different responses to conflict but, because I think they're genius, but I can't take credit for them. This is from Ken Sandy, who is the founder of Peacemaker Ministries and the author of the book, The Peacemaker, A Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict. 
Uh, we wanted to have some of these available for you uh, today to buy in case you wanted to delve more into this, deeply into the subject. And we ordered them over 20 days ago, saying allow seven to 10 business days. And they're sitting in a postal warehouse right now instead of here. But if you want to still go out and pay for it, you can pick it up next week or whenever they eventually come in. We'll note that you have paid for it and get a copy. So that's available out at a table uh, out in the gathering place when the service is over. So let's go back to the slippery slope diagram, the one that's in here. It's called the slippery slope because you're supposed to think of it not just as a half circle, uh, but you're supposed to think of it as an ice-covered hill. The goal is to stay on top of the hill, not getting too close to the edges where you're going to be in danger of sliding off. The top of the hill, the responses in the middle, the ones that are gold-colored, both in your pamphlet and on the slide, are biblically appropriate ways of handling conflict. The two extremes on the left and the right are inappropriate responses to handling conflict. At least they're inappropriate according to the Bible. These two extremes are territory where conflict and sin become intertwined. So we're going to start looking at the two extremes so we know what to avoid, and then we're going to actually uh, go to the biblical ones after that. So let's first look at the escape responses, the blue ones over on the left. People tend to use escape responses when they're more interested in avoiding or getting away from conflict than in resolving it. And the first escape response is denial. I'm not starting on the bottom, by the way. We're going to work our way from the top down on the blue side, like if you're going down that slope. Denial is pretending that the conflict doesn't exist. If you're trying to ignore the conflict, but still harboring anger or bitterness inside, then you're probably in denial. Denial may also look like you're promising yourself, I'm going to deal with that conflict, but just later, not now. But then you never end up getting around to it. Technically, then, you're still in denial uh, about it. The next response, escape response down, is flight, or in other words, running away from the conflict. This might mean ending a friendship or leaving a church rather than trying to settle a conflict you have with someone in the church or quitting some other type of commitment or making up some excuse not to participate in some activity just to avoid being around a person with whom you're in conflict. The third and most extreme escape response is suicide, the ultimate escape. Now, I'm not saying that all suicides are a result of someone trying to escape from conflict. I'm only saying that if someone goes to the most extreme form of escape from conflict and gets to the point of losing all hope of resolving the conflict, they might then start thinking that it'd be better for them to take their own lives than to have to face that conflict. So on the opposite end, from the blue, we go over to the red responses, uh, the attack responses. People tend to use attack responses when they're more interested in winning the conflict than they are in preserving a relationship or bringing glory to God. The first of the attack responses, we're starting up the slope again, is assault, which can be used the use which can, use, which can be the use of physical force or verbal attack. Assault can take the form of intimidation, gossip, slander, or actually physically shoving or striking another person. The next one down on the attack responses is litigation, which is taking the conflict before a civil judge, or in other words, suing the person with whom you have a conflict. Most of you are probably familiar with Paul's admonition to the Corinthians not to sue their fellow believers in the secular courts. That admonition, by the way, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
But sometimes, rather than go to a court downtown Colorado Springs, we also have this court up in our mind, and we litigate uh, by prosecuting the person that we're in conflict with. We present mental evidence, and then we act as both judge and jury, all without saying a word to the other person. The conflict is resolved, as far as we're concerned, because we found them guilty. And the only thing that's left is to carry out their punishment, which might involve not ever speaking to them again or taking revenge on them some way. Well, the final one, another extreme on the attack responses, is murder. Once again, this is pushing it to the ultimate extreme. But murder can be literally, but it also can be figuratively killing the other person in conflict. Jesus taught in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, that anger and contempt toward another person makes us equally liable in God's eyes as if we had committed murder. Finally, we get to the peacemaking responses, the gold-colored ones in the middle. Of the six gold-colored uh, peacemaking responses, the first three responses on the left side of the diagram are referred to as personal peacemaking because they're usually implemented by the individual without help from others. Although the exception is this, is there might be a, some behind-the-scenes coaching of someone helping that person uh, implement their own personal response. And if the peacemaking personal response, the three on the left, isn't good enough to get the job done or hasn't been successful, it's important that the person in the conflict ask for some assistance from other people in resolving the conflict. This is what Jesus taught in Matthew 18 when it says, you know, go get a brother. Uh, and then eventually it'll say, uh, go tell it to the church. The last three responses get third parties involved in the conflict besides the person who's in the conflict, the other person who's in the conflict, but this is getting outsiders involved. So let's go back and go through them one at a time. The first personal peacemaking response is overlook, which is quietly overlooking and forgiving an offense, even without the other person asking for forgiveness. You'll notice that overlooking and denial are next to each other on the slippery slope. And that's because there's a subtle but important difference between the two. Overlooking recognizes a conflict and chooses to quietly walk away without harboring resentment or bitterness, but denial just pretends there's no conflict to begin with or den denies that it needs to be dealt with. Now, one thing I will stop and mention here is these are not proportional. They just made the diagram as there's six gold responses. If uh, I had to guess that of the gold responses, overlooking actually probably takes 80 to 85% of you know, your average conflict needs to be overlooked. Uh, I, I say this as a person who's been married for 27 years. Trust me, the best way to, look most over, to handle most conflict is simply overlooking it and not dealing with it. But what happens when you can't overlook it? Maybe you try to overlook it, but there's still bitterness or anger or resentment there. Well, let's go on to the next one, and that's reconciliation. Reconciliation is where confession or loving correction leads to resolving relational issues. Reconciliation needs to happen when the conflict is too serious to overlook. Reconciliation can result from confession of personal responsibility. In other words, I go confess my part in the conflict to the other person, or uh, lovingly approaching the person I'm in conflict with about his behavior or attitude, or from a combination of both. And most likely, it's always going to be a combination of both of us asking for forgiveness for what we've done wrong and reconciling with one another. The last personal peacemaking response up there at the top is negotiation. 
And this is when both parties get together and reach a compromise on agreement on resolving their conflict. A successful negotiation will re respond to the substantive needs of everyone involved. So a negotiation often makes most sense when money or property or some kind of rights are at stake. For instance, you hire a painter to paint your house because you're having a big family reunion and he says he'll have it done in a month. And you say, oh, that's great because my family comes in five weeks. Well, what happens if he doesn't finish it for another month after that and the house wasn't painted? Are you entitled to a rebate or a discount on the price? That might be worth something negotiating with them and, hey, you made me a promise and I told you why it was important by this date. How about giving me a discount? Uh, that's, the, that's negotiation. And like I said, it often works best when money or property rights are involved. So now we're going to move from the personal peacemaking responses to the assisted peacemaking responses where you go and get other people involved. The first of these is mediation. Mediation is asking another person, someone who's not involved in the conflict, to help resolve the conflict through a facilitated discussion. And effective mediation often requires more formal training for the mediator. Now, sometimes you can find someone who does a great job as a mediator with no formal training, uh, but there are people who are actually trained to do this. The mediator doesn't necessarily come up with a solution for the parties. In fact, their very definition of mediation is the parties both have to agree on the solution that they come up with. But the mediator is only there to assist the parties to get to the, to arrive at a solution on which they both can agree. The next one over is a little bit more formal. That's arbitration. Arbitration involves both sides presenting their concerns and asking the arbitrator to decide what should be done. Unlike mediation, it's up to the arbitrator what the resolution of the conflict is going to look like. Under mediation, the two sides arrive at their solution together, but under arbitration, the arbitrator, not the parties, pick the solution. By the way, remember Paul's admonition to the Corinthians not to sue uh, one another in secular courts? His proposed solution, he says, what you ought to be doing instead is finding someone within the church who can resolve your differences. What he was talking about is arbitration. The final assisted peacemaking response is simply called accountability. And accountability refers to the oversight by church leaders as described in Matthew 18. This is the final step in Matthew 18. Uh, you know, I didn't have, you have us read that entire chapter, but I'm guessing most of you are familiar with it. It says, you know, go talk to the person you're in conflict with. If that doesn't work, take someone with you. If that doesn't work, take it to the church. This is the take it to the church part. Well, I have dumped a lot of information on you already this morning, and we're only halfway done. So uh, I'd like to talk, in the second half, I'd like to talk to you more about how to implement those pacemaking responses. Well, how do you do that? But before I do, I'd like to offer you a brief reflection time. I'm going to ask Tim to come up and play some music during that reflection time to allow you some time to process this information, hopefully let you hear from the Holy Spirit how it may apply to your life. So here's three questions, suggested questions, I'd encourage you to reflect on during this time. The first one is, how do you typically respond to conflict? You know, all of us have responded poorly to conflict, and we've probably found ourselves in those red or blue extremes at times. But what this question is asking you is, which way do you tend to go because of your personality? And as talking with someone after the first service, and it occurred to me, you know, the situation may think, like at, at home you may always be red, but at work you may always tend to go towards the blue. But the whole point of the question is just think. Which direction do you tend to go naturally? 
The second reflection is, what are the conflicts you're currently facing? Specific ones that you might be in right now or in the recent past. And the final reflection question is, have you responded to those conflicts in a biblically appropriate way? Or have you responded with escape or attack responses? So let me give you a couple minutes to pray about that, listen to the Holy Spirit, and see if you can get some answers from the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about the biblical pattern for resolving conflict. The biblical pattern for responding to conflict can be summarized by using four G's. Uh, Ken Sandy, by the way, really liked alliterations. And uh, so if you, if you open, here's the slippery slope. On the other, opposite side is the four G's of peacemaking. The four G's are glorify God, get the log out of your eye, gently restore, go and be reconciled. And for the remainder of this morning, we're going to take a deeper look at each one of those G's. The first G is glorify God. Instead of focusing on our own desires or dwelling on what others may be doing, we should always focus on pleasing and honoring God. But how do you glorify God when you're faced with conflict? The first way is by imitating his grace towards us by showing grace to others, including an attitude that is willing to give them forgiveness. This is why... This sermon is part of this Grace People series, is is, uh, this important point. Another way to glorify God when we're in conflict is by obeying his commands. When we follow the instructions that he's given us in his word for resolving conflict, that brings him glory, even if the other side isn't responding in a way that we'd like, even if the conflict doesn't get resolved in the way we like, we're still bringing glory to God and a testimony to what he said to human beings about resolving conflict. And finally, we bring glory to God by trusting God, leaving the outcomes in his hands rather than taking on the responsibility to control the situation by our own means. 
This is especially hard after you hear a sermon like this. You think, oh, I'm going to go do all those checklists, and then that person's going to repent, and we're going to be happy and live together happily ever after. And it doesn't always happen that way. But the way you glorify God is trust Him for the outcome. Just make sure you're doing the things that He calls you to do and leave the results to Him. Now let's go to the second G. The phrase, get the log out of your eye, you probably recognize, comes from Jesus' teachings found in Matthew 7, where he said, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Instead of attacking others or dwelling on the other side's wrong, we take responsibility for our own contribution to the conflict. Confessing our sins, asking God to help us change any attitudes or habits that we have that led to the conflict, and seeking to repair any harm we have caused. Now, this is a really important principle, and it also explains those verses in Matthew 7. If you've ever often wondered about these specks and logs in people's eyes, what did Jesus mean? And that is, even if I believe the conflict is 99% the other person's fault, it's their attitudes, the things they've done, they're really to blame for it, and I'm maybe 1%, only one part in 100 I can own up to. It still says in that, that verse from Matthew 7, is I need to get the log out of my own eye first. And what that means is I need to confess what I've done wrong, take responsibility for that 1%. Now, by the way, I, I wouldn't advocate going and saying, hey, I'm going to confess my 1% so you can confess your 99. Just start with, hey, you know what? This, we're in this conflict, and I did something, or I thought of something, I have this attitude that's not right, and it's making the conflict worse. I want to confess this to you, and will you forgive me? We can remove the, our own, the log from our own eye through confession. And I'm going to refer you to the pamphlet one more time. Uh, there's some helpful hints on making a success, successful confession. This is on the next panel over from the four G's, and it's the seven A's of confession. Like I said, they, a lot of alliteration on this pamphlet. We can remove our, the log from our own eye through confession. And uh, these principles for making a good confession are referred to as the seven A's of confession. The first A is, a is address everyone involved. That means all those whom your actions have affected. So sometimes you may think, well, I've uh, done something wrong against someone, and uh, you forget that there's some sometimes collateral damage. Uh, for instance, if you're arguing with your spouse and all of a sudden you realize it's in front of your kids, maybe you need to apologize to the kids as well as to your spouse. Second A is avoid. Avoid words like if, but, or maybe. Don't try to excuse your wrongs by shifting the blame or minimizing your role in the conflict. It's no good to say, hey, I'm sorry for my response, but it was totally justified because you're such a jerk. That's not a good confession for a couple of reasons. Next A is admit. Admit specifically both your attitudes and actions that have contributed to the conflict. And the key word there is specifically. Don't just say, I'm sorry. Tell them specifically what you're sorry for, what it was you did, or the attitude that you had that's uh, helping to create the conflict. The next A is acknowledge. Acknowledge the hurt. Express sorrow for hurting someone. 
even if you don't think they're justified in being hurt, even if you think, well, they're just being thin-skinned and too politically correct, don't dwell on why, don't tell them why they're too thin-skinned. Just apologize for the hurt that they caused and say you're sorry. Next day is accept the consequences, willingly do what it takes to restore the other person to wholeness, such as making restitution if possible. Next day is alter your behavior, change your attitudes and actions. It's not really a good way to ask forgiveness if you don't repent and if you just go back and repeat the things that you've already asked for forgiveness for. So you need to stop those behaviors. And finally, the last day is ask. Ask for forgiveness and allow time for healing to occur. Don't demand that they forgive you immediately. By the way, that's a response I can't believe how many times I've seen in people. Well, I put together a good confession and I'm asking for your forgiveness. Why don't you forgive me? Just give them grace. You may have taken some time to arrive at realizing you want to resolve this conflict. They may not be there yet. So giving them grace is just allowing time. You can ask for forgiveness, but you may need to just leave it and give them time to think about it. Let's go on to the third G, gently restore. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You'll notice at the end of verse 1 there, there's a warning. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Now, I think most people tend to assume it's warning you don't get caught up in the same transgression that they're getting caught up in. But I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I think what he's saying there is that uh, when you go to help someone who's caught in sin, he's giving a warning that whenever you're going to do that, to help someone trapped in sin, you're going to be tempted to start thinking that you are better than that other person. You're trapped in sin, and I'm not. And this is what he's warning against. The temptation you've got is that you're somehow better than this other person. So I think what he's warning us is go humbly and gently restore them. Realize and remember, even if you haven't been caught in that particular sin, you know what it's like to be trapped in sin and to be trapped in it. Uh, deal with them in such a way that, in a gentle way that you would want to be dealt with. Now, some offenses are simply too serious to be overlooked, and that's why we're saying you need to go gently restore. If a relationship has been damaged, we need to go talk to that other person. If the offense has been so serious that it's hurt you or it's hurt someone else or it's even hurt the offender themselves, if you're having a hard time thinking of what that might be, think of drug or alcohol abuse, uh, you need to try to gently restore the offending party. If you're a person whose personality tends toward the escape responses, the blue ones, and I'm right there with you, that's where I am naturally, then you need to be careful that if you find yourself preferring to overlook an offense, that you might just double check and make sure you've not slipped down that slope further in denial, that your denial, you're denying the seriousness of the offense. If you're like me, you hate going to someone else, especially if you're going to go and say, hey, I think what you did is wrong. You just hate doing that. But sometimes you need to do it. And if you're not sure, 
it might be worth taking the time to ask a third party, someone who's not in the conflict, whether they think the offense is something that you could choose to overlook and just let it go, or whether the offense is too serious and you need to go talk to the person who offended you. So here's some good tips on how to restore. First one is avoid lecturing. Lecturing builds walls, not bridges. It's not going to get the job done. The second is use good listening skills, such as paraphrasing, clarifying, and patiently permitting the other person to express his or her concerns. You need to make a really sincere effort of understanding, uh, to understand why they did and what they did. Uh, try to get their perspective on the situation. Third one is focus on what God has done through Jesus to forgive and deliver you. You can talk about how you've been trapped in sin in the past and Jesus has delivered you. Uh, focus on the availability of God's forgiveness and grace. Don't focus on what they've done wrong or how bad the sin is. Here's some more tips. Um, by the way, these lists, this is uh, as you go seek to prepare or seek to restore. This next list is uh, some more tips on how to prepare once you've decided you're going to go and talk to them. So there is some overlap between the two lists. Words can be extremely powerful weapons, and the way we use them can make or break any attempt to resolve a conflict. God helps us resolve difficult situations through prayer, preparation, and the application of grace. So as you prepare to talk to another, remember these guidelines. Pray for humility and wisdom. Plan words carefully. Think of how you would want to be corrected if you were in their position. Anticipate likely reactions that they might have and plan appropriate responses. The idea here is you don't want to be caught off guard by something they say. Just sit down and think what some of the possible responses they might, might come up with. The next one is very important too. Choose the right time and place. Uh, for instance, in front of other people, it usually isn't a good idea to tell someone they're wrong. Uh, Talk in person whenever possible, face-to-face. -face. Emails generally are also not very good ways to do conflict resolution. There are a lot more conflict creation than conflict resolution. Which, by the way, some emails are good. Like if you want to send an email to someone and say, hey, I would really like to talk with you face-to-face, -face, that's a good email. Trying to do, tell someone, Here, here's why I think you were wrong in an email is not going to end well, simply because it's too hard to read someone when they're not face-to-face. -face. So the next hint is assume the best about the other person until facts prove otherwise. Now, if you've been in a conflict with someone for any amount of time, you're going to assume, most naturally, that they are out to get you, they don't like you. Uh, you shouldn't start at that place. This is a time before you go to stop and back down and realize, you know, maybe there's some other reason why they're acting their way they are towards me. It's not just because they don't like me. Then again, maybe they just don't like you. But don't assume it. Wait, wait till they tell you that. So, the next one is uh, kind of repetitive from our other list. Listen carefully. Try to get their perspective on the situation. Uh, the next hint is from Ephesians 4.29. Speak only to build others up. The point is not to make them realize what a sinner they are. The point is to offer them help out of the trap that they're in from the sin. The next one is ask for feedback from the other person. And this is part of listening carefully, of how you actively listen. And ask them to tell you if, if you're understanding the situation, especially after they give an explanation. 
And then finally, recognize your personal limits. This is going to shock some of you, but you're not God. You can't change people. You can't make them change by what you say. So don't blame yourself if they don't change. And don't blame them if they don't change. Don't beat them up into, you're never going to beat someone up into forgiveness. It's not going to work that way. So give them time if they don't repent, repent immediately. Give the Holy Spirit the time and space to work in their lives without your help when you're not around. So we finally come to the last G. Go and be reconciled. Instead of accepting premature compromise or allowing relationships to wither, we can actively pursue genuine peace and reconciliation. We can forgive others as God has forgiven us. Think about it. The Bible says that each one of us deserves an eternity of separation from God spent in awful punishment. But God sent his son to die for us so that we no longer have to face that punishment. If we have been forgiven that much, that we've been rescued from an eternity in hell, separated from God's presence, and we get in exchange an eternity of living in God's presence, is there anything another human being can do to me that I can't forgive? I'm not saying that forgiveness is easy. In some things, forgiving people you know, crimes of violence against you, or sexual abuse, or physical abuse, they're incredibly hard to offer forgiveness. But as bad as those things are, you've still been forgiven more than what God is asking you to forgive that person. What's more, God's loved us so much that he's brought us into his family. He invites us to come and join him in the family business. Did you know that God had a family business? It's not a Chinese restaurant, by the way. Do you know what the family business is? You can read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, among other places. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The family business of the father and the son is reconciliation, making relationships right. God was exercising and doing that business when he sent the son to the earth. Jesus was working in that business when he came to earth, lived among us, and then died willingly on a cross for our sins. And now... The Father and the Son are calling you to come join him in the family business of reconciliation. Reconciling people to God and reconciling people to each other. Will you answer his invitation and come join him in the work of reconciliation? The worship team is going to be coming back up right now to lead us in celebrating the Lord's Supper, communion. Most of the time when we approach this table, and appropriately so, our focus is on our relationship with God, the vertical. But our worship with God has a horizontal component as well, our relationship with fellow human beings. Jesus had this to say about our conflicts when we come to worship. This is from Matthew 5, 23 and 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, or in other words, you've come to worship God, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. 
Jesus sets the priority for us. He says, stop working on your vertical relationship with God and go work on that horizontal. He's not saying the horizontal is more important. He's just saying before you worship, it's more urgent. It's a higher priority. Before you work on the vertical, go work on the horizontal. So how does that apply to us this morning as we're coming for communion? If that person that you're in conflict with is in this room, perhaps you need to go speak with them before you take communion. Now you may not have time to fully reconcile completely, but perhaps you can agree to reconcile and work on it. And that first act of working on it together can be having communion together with that person. Maybe the Holy Spirit's telling that you need to reprioritizing resolving a conflict with someone who isn't here in this room this morning. If it's the Holy Spirit and not just me telling you that you shouldn't come forward to take communion until you've taken steps to reconcile with that broken relationship, perhaps you should listen and just stay in your seat instead of coming forward and taking the Lord's Supper. Maybe the person that you've really had a severe conflict with has passed away, or for some other reason there's no way to possible way for you to speak to them. Let me suggest that in that situation, you still need to turn the conflict over to God. And one way to do that is go over to the prayer wall and write on a piece of paper the conflict or your prayer request about that conflict and stick it in the wall and help let God help you uh, take that burden of that unresolved conflict off of you. The worship team is going to lead us in this time of worship. The tables are open. So please feel free to come.